I'd like to invite you to open your hymnals to selection 589, where we'll find printed the text for this morning's message. The text is the same that's been the text for our whole series, The Beatitudes of Jesus, from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Let's read these together in unison. Now when he saw the crowds... He went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our focus this morning is on Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. And in the brief time that we have to deal with this immense topic of mercy, I would like us to try to answer four questions. First, how does a heart become merciful? Or where does mercy come from? Second, what is mercy? Or what is a merciful person like? Third, should a merciful person always show mercy? Or can a Christian be a prosecuting attorney? And fourth, why will only merciful people receive mercy at the judgment day if salvation is by grace through faith? Let's pray together before we try to address those questions. Lord Jesus, by nature, we are selfish and not merciful. And therefore, what is needed is a miracle in our lives that changes our nature. A miracle of the Holy Spirit mediated through the power of your word. And I pray for that my own heart, in the hearts of these who listen for this next half hour. We long, Lord, we're hungry, and we're thirsty for the righteousness of mercy. And I pray that you would create it in our hearts. Through your name we pray, amen. First question then. 
Where does mercy come from? What's the source of this virtue? Now, I don't think we need to go far beyond the immediate context of the Beatitudes. All we need to do is remind ourselves of last week's structure. Let's do that. You recall that the Beatitudes begin with three descriptions of blessed emptiness. Poverty of spirit, verse 3. A sorrowing or a grieving over that condition and the attendant miseries of life. Verse 4. A meek readiness to wait upon the timing of God without rebellion or defensiveness. Verse 5. And then... Growing out of that emptiness, a hunger and a thirst for all that's right and all that's good from the hand of God. A looking away from ourselves with hunger and thirst to the fountain of living waters that he might pour into us what we need. And then today's beatitude is like the fountain of the overflowing of the answer to that prayer, mercy that spills over on other people. And so you can see from the structure of the Beatitudes where mercy comes from. If you want to be a merciful person, you need to be a broken person. You need to grieve over your unmercifulness and feel a sense of meek readiness for God to act in his timing on your behalf and then cry out to God for the mercy of filling us with righteousness. In other words, if you want to become merciful, then you need to cultivate a view of God and a view of yourself that makes it authentic when you say every virtue, every gift, every blessing, every distress of my life is a gift of sovereign, free, and undeserved mercy. And when you can say that from the bottom of your heart, it is certain that you will spill over in mercy towards others rather than retaliation. Second question, what is mercy? What's a merciful person like? I find it helpful in answering questions like this to look for texts where the term mercy is used and a contrast with its opposite is given. So let me show you three of those that have been very helpful to me. And I discovered something brand new in searching these out. Namely that in each of these three instances, the opposite, quite unexpectedly to me, turned out to be the same thing, although in very different words. The first, I invite you to turn to Matthew 9. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13. And as the Lord sat at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came to call not the righteous, 
but sinners. In this illustration, what's the opposite of mercy? Sacrifice. Verse 13, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Now that's a quote from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God is accusing His people of having love like the dew on the grass. Sun comes out, it's gone. And all that's left is the husk of burnt offerings. And the point of the the prophetic word is, I want a people whose hearts are full of life all day long, not whose lives are husks of perfunctory religious performances like sacrifice. Now Jesus picks this up. He enters into a banquet with some sinners and tax collectors and life begins to happen. He sees these people as sick and they're the money movers of the day. Don't picture them as the downers and outers. These are the big tax collectors. They've got the money. They wear the three-piece suits and work in the IDS tower. They are sick, 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 Jesus says. And he's got life. He's got the medicine. He's the doctor. There's going to be some great transaction here. And the Pharisees, all they see is a ceremonial problem with uncleanness. You're going to get contaminated. Now, what's the opposite of mercy in this? The opposite of mercy is the bondage to religious trivia. And many people, religious people, neglect mercy because their lives are so preoccupied with and enslaved to religious trifles. Let's look at another text that says almost the same thing. It's Matthew 23, verses 23 to 24. Matthew 23, one of these woes that Jesus pronounces against the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy. There it is. And faith. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Now, what's the opposite of mercy in this text? The opposite of mercy is straining out gnats. The opposite of mercy is when your religious impulses are exhausted after you have decided whether to tithe your gross or your net or your birthday gifts. The lesson we learn from the words of Jesus when He says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Or when He says here, you strain out gnats and swallow camels of unmercifulness is this, the great enemy of mercy in the lives of many is preoccupation with religious gnats, trivia, 
trifles in life. Bondage to triviality is the curse of the unmerciful. When Jesus says, don't neglect, this is verse 23, don't neglect the weightier matters of the law. He means beware of going through the day thinking only trivial thoughts, feeling only trivial feelings, doing only trivial things. Beware of that. He wants us to pinch ourselves again and again. Pinch yourself lest you be found swooning in front of the television. And making no plans for the weighty matters of life. How do you feel about your past week? Did you devote thought, affection, and action to matters of weight? Blessed are the merciful. Therefore, if you want to be blessed... Make war on the bondage to triviality in your life. Whether secular triviality or religious triviality. We'll come back and say more about that in just a moment. Let's go to one other text. Luke chapter 10. You all know this story. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. But I think you'll see a connection that you may not have seen before. I had never seen it before to the two texts that we just looked at. Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Another illustration of the meaning of mercy and its opposite. Let's get the setting before us with verses 25 following. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You have answered right. Do this, and you will live. Now let's pause there and, and relate this setting to the fourth beatitude. The man says... What kind of life must I live in order that I might anticipate receiving the mercy of eternal life in the last day? And Jesus says, you know the answer to that already. You tell me. And he says, you have to love God and be merciful to your neighbor. And Jesus says, that's right. In other words, the fourth beatitude. Blessed are the merciful for they will inherit the mercy of eternal life. That's the meaning of the beatitude. That's the meaning of this parable. And therefore, the words that follow are a clear, lucid photograph of the meaning of the mercy spoken of in the beatitude. Let's read it. Jesus replies when he he asks, who's my neighbor? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and, and so he was probably, by the way, a Jew since he was leaving and going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, 
he had compassion and went to him and bound his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. When he set, then he set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend I will repay when I come back. Jesus asked, Which of the three do you think proved neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, The one who showed mercy. There it is. The one who showed mercy on him. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Now, there are four features of mercy in this photograph. Number one, mercy sees distress. It is not oblivious to it. Verse 33, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and he saw him. Second feature of mercy, mercy responds internally with a heart of pity and compassion. Also in verse 33, when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Third feature of mercy, it responds externally with efforts of relief. Verse 33 again, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own beast. Then he brought him to the inn and he took care of him. He paid for him. He made plans for him. And then the fourth feature of mercy is that all of this happens. He sees, he pities, he acts in spite of the fact that there is racial and religious enmity between these two. So the meaning of mercy in this text is an eye that sees distress, a heart that pities misery, an effort to relieve in spite of enmity. It's clear. We know what mercy is. Now, what's the opposite of mercy? In this text. Isn't it remarkable that this parable makes the same point as Matthew 9.13 and Matthew 23.23? There, Jesus said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And in this text, he says, be like the Samaritan who's merciful, not like the... Now, he made up this story. He didn't have to choose a priest and a Levite to illustrate the opposite of mercy. Why did he do that? Why did he choose a pastor and a minister of music? Well, probably because there are so many of us who are so caught up in the mechanics of religion that we don't have any eye for distress or heart of pity or effort for relief. And so the warning of all three of these texts is that the great obstacle, the great enemy of mercy among religious people is bondage to religious machinery and trivia. And it affects every one of us. So if you want to be merciful, you must make war on slavery to secular and religious trivia. Secular trivia. 
like spending all your time in front of the television or doodling around with some hobby every night. Instead of making plans and thinking through weighty things to do with your life. Or religious trivia, like you name it, preaching or praying, teaching or tithing, any religious activity that does not cultivate in your heart and my heart compassion for misery is trivial in the eyes of God. And so I invite you to make war in your own heart against religious machinery and trivia. Third question. Should a merciful person always show mercy? Or can a Christian be a prosecuting attorney? The reason I pose this question is because you live in a very complex world and you work in places where there are decisions to be made that are extraordinarily difficult if your desire is to apply the Beatitudes. And I believe that is your desire. Let me pose for you four questions to see whether or not these bring to the fore the kind of tensions in which you and I live. Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be a parent who spanks a child for disobedience and does not turn the other cheek in the face of the child's insolence? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be an employer who pays good wages for excellent work and dismisses irresponsible employees who do shoddy work? Can a Christian be consistently merciful and yet be a legislator who enacts stiff penalties for laws or for the breaking of laws about child abuse or drunk driving? Can a Christian be a consistently merciful person and yet belong to a council of deacons who follow the biblical mandate of church discipline and excommunicate a member for unforsaken and public sin? Now those four questions relate to four spheres of life where you and I live. The sphere of the family the sphere of business and economics, the sphere of government and law enforcement, and the sphere of the church and religion. My answer to those questions is, God's will is that in all of those spheres, while this age lasts, there be a mingling of justice and mercy. God's will is that sometimes we recompense people with just what they deserve, whether reward in praise or punishment in penalty. And God's will is that we show mercy. In upholding the claims of justice, we bear witness to the fact that God is a God of justice. 
In showing mercy, we bear witness to the truth that God is a God of mercy. A biblical parent will usually follow the wisdom of Proverbs 13, 24, that sparing the rod spoils the child. But there will be times when the parent will not punish a given act of disobedience in order to display in vivid colors to that child the nature of God as a God of mercy and woo the child to the Savior. A biblical judge will usually, scrupulously, impartially render sentences according to the grievousness of the crimes committed, but occasionally he will dispense clemency for higher and greater good. A biblical employer will usually pay pay a fair wage and insist on good workmanship according to the teaching of 2 Thessalonians 3.10, but there will be times when he will go the extra mile with a sick or an aging or a distressed or an inadequately trained employee. And a biblical deacon will call public sin to account and if necessary, discipline it. And if necessary, excommunicate an unrepentant church member, but will also remember the parable of the wheat and the tares which summons us to patience with the imperfection of the church while this age lasts. If you ask me, how do I know when to show justice and how to show mercy? My answer is, get as close to Jesus as you can. Because the Bible does not give an exhaustive list of rules by which to determine in which and every circumstance the proportion of mercy and justice is to be. Now, I don't think that's an accident. I think the point of Scripture is to to create merciful people, not give exhaustive lists that cover every circumstance. That's why the Beatitude says, blessed are the merciful people. Not, blessed are people who know when and how precisely to show mercy in every circumstance of life. That's not what the Beatitude says. The Beatitude says there is a kind of person who is merciful and they struggle with how to manifest that heart disposition of mercy and the blessedness falls upon their nature. They must be poor in spirit sorrowful for their own sin, meekly awaiting the timing of God to care for their affairs, hungry and thirsty for God to show righteous to them, show mercy and righteousness to them and and enable them to spill over in mercy and see distress and feel pity and show action to do as much good for as many people as they can. We can be that kind of people without knowing exactly the way to apportion it in every circumstance. So, what's the answer to our third question? Should a merciful person always show mercy? My answer is a qualified no. 
No, you will often support the claims of justice and recompense a person to the way they deserve. And you will often show mercy beyond what they deserve. And the reason I say it's a qualified no is because if you are a merciful person, even the way you do justice will be different. The way you spank a child, the way you prosecute a criminal, the way you dismiss an employee will be different. The parent may cry. The attorney may visit the criminal whose condemnation he has secured in the service of justice. And the employer may pay an extended severance. He may pay for some remedial training. It will show. Mercy will show. And it must show, and that's the fourth and final question, why must it? Why is it that only those who are merciful will inherit mercy in the age to come? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, and only they shall obtain mercy. Is this salvation by works? Do you earn mercy from God at the judgment day by showing mercy now? Well, the answer to that is a resounding no. And the first reason is that the term earned mercy is a contradiction in terms. If you earn it, it's a wage. It's not mercy. But the text says we shall obtain mercy. If you get anything good at the judgment day, it's going to be 110% mercy, not wage. Well, then how should we speak of it? If the text says your receiving mercy is conditional upon your being merciful, what can we think of instead of earning? And I've said this many times, this is old terrain for us at Bethlehem. Let me paint the picture one more time and we'll close. You will stand before the judge and he will say, I would like to see the record of your mercy. And you will not reach in your coat and pull out a time card. Ding. And give it to him and say, there it is. Eight full hours of mercy. Pay up. You will not do that. If you try, you will be dismissed. Here's what you will do. You will reach into the other side of your coat and you will pull out your medical charts. You'll lay them on the, the bench. And he will look at the medical charts and he will see the evidence of your healing and how you have trusted your great physician and laid yourselves open to the medicine of his word and the therapy of his spirit. And he will see all of the manifestations of his mercy as your doctor in your life and how he has begun to heal you from the hellish disease of unmercifulness, which is an inveterate disease 
in all of our hearts. And you will wait. And he will look up at you and say, well done, good and faithful patient. I see that you have trusted me and taken my medicine. And I will now complete the healing and perfect you in mercy through all eternity. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Let's stand for prayer. O Lord God, in this last moment, as we stand before you together, having stood under your word now, we long for the ministration of your Holy Spirit in power at this moment. O holy God, would you apply this word to the hearts of sinners like me, to break us of our pride, to make us poor in spirit, grieved over our sin, meekly patient before your disposal of our lives, longing and hungry and thirsty for the mercy of the creation of righteousness in our hearts and overflowing in mercy, the sight of distress, the heart of pity and the effort of relief. Oh God, would you create it in Bethlehem toward one another and towards those outside. And Lord, for those who've never been broken, who've never stood naked before you and confessed their sin and drunk in the waters of forgiveness from the fountain of life, may they do it right now. Into your hands we commit our spirits, Lord, expecting the miracle of regeneration and edification. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.